It's Monday, March the 22nd, 2021. Almost 450 million vaccines for COVID-19 have been administered worldwide. This is The Jab from Economist Radio. I'm Alok Jha, The Economist science correspondent. And I'm Natasha Loda, the health policy editor. In this podcast, we're reporting from the sharp end of the vaccination race. We're following the vaccine story as it happens. Today, we're discussing whether America has turned a corner in beating the pandemic. Natasha, hello. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. All right. Um, I got my jab uh, yesterday. You got your jab? You, you, no, I didn't know we were giving it to 25-year-olds. Oh, you're so sweet. You're so sweet. How are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling okay now. I um, woke up in the middle of the night with, um, uh, you know, something of a fever, took some paracetamol, went to bed, and I'm feeling okay now. Good, good. Can you tell us which vaccine you had? I had the AstraZeneca vaccine. I was very pleased about it, actually, because I think there's been quite a ridiculous fuss about it in the last uh, week. And it's a great vaccine and I'm proud to get it. Hold that thought because I'll ask you about it in just a minute. Um, In a moment, we're going to hear from Dr. Anthony Fauci, Chief Medical Advisor to President Joe Biden. Joining us on the programme again this week is Ed Carr. He's the Deputy Editor at The Economist and he oversees the paper's COVID coverage. Hi, Ed. How are you? I'm good, thanks. So, Ed, last year, President Trump's critics looked very enviously at Europe as an example of how to contain the virus. But now America is vaccinating at a much greater pace than Europe, and the EU seems to be embroiled in various vaccine problems. Um, Can you give us a sense of what's going on? Yes, I mean, it started, I think, with the Europeans being much slower to sign up doses of vaccine, and so the vaccine arrived more slowly. It then has sort of degenerated into anxieties about whether there are various clotting events are really associated with the AstraZeneca vaccine, which turns out they aren't, and has now developed further into a a kind of re-flaring up of a row about whether too many vaccines are being exported from the EU around the world, and particularly to Britain, instead of fulfilling what the EU says are contracts that AstraZeneca has undertaken. And it's a whole big mess of different views over who should fulfil the contracts, how, arguments over trying to shift the blame in politics because the European vaccination programme is very far behind and European politicians want to blame the Brits, and genuine anxiety sort of stirred up by this fuss over clotting among Europeans. You know, this thing is not symmetrical. You can't just say one day we're a bit worried about this and then say, oh, it's all fine and everyone just kind of bounces back to where they were. This overshadows the vaccine. It's a real mess. Kind of what should have been just a transient, slightly slower delivery of vaccines in Europe is just becoming worse with each measure taken to try and and correct it. Meanwhile, Natasha, in America, a clinical trial showed that the AstraZeneca vaccine is effective and is safe. 
Yes, the um, interim readout has certainly shown that the vaccine works. It's uh, 79% efficacy, uh, 80% in those that are over 65 years old. And of course, uh, they've now got safety data for 33,000 people. It now needs to go to the regulator. Um, The trial needs to close up, send its data to the regulator, and then the regulator will be the one to decide that the vaccine is um, safe and effective. Although, you know, we know that from other regulatory decisions around the world. And what, and what about the, the, the sort of spat um, in, in Europe in terms of threatening supply chains and ingredients going across borders? I mean, how bad is that for vaccine production and rollout? Well, it could be a disaster if this plays out to its full extent. At the moment, you know, the EU wants more vaccine. Uh, it's eyeing uh, suppliers that seem to be headed for the UK. The UK could retaliate by stopping the export of the raw ingredients that are needed to make Pfizer's vaccine in Belgium. That's a kind of real nuclear option, though, because that's going to have an impact on vaccine making for countries around the world, um, including the UK. So it would seem a really disproportionate thing to do. And and the result of all of that is, Ed, that half the people in Europe, according to new polls, don't trust the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's, it's not great, is it? There's something really weird about this. First of all, for instance, in France, first of all, they didn't want to use the vaccine in over 65-year-olds because it was supposedly quasi-ineffective. And now, because of these anxieties about clotting events, they don't want to use it in under 55-year-olds. So you're left with a a 10-year margin. And a lot of French people, I think over 60%, who now have lack confidence in the vaccine. These things are, are very damaging. As Europe goes down, large bits of Europe go down into another lockdown, and you see the B117 variant first found in Britain beginning to spread quite fast there. This is a you know a bad situation that will cost lives and it will impoverish people and it's a really bad outcome. And what do you think Ed about you know the EU which is in a political corner essentially you know trying to get vaccine that member nations don't seem to be that inclined to use you know merely to get themselves out of a, a political corner I mean can that be can that be right? Well, I think if one goes right back to the very beginning, the EU did not write uh, into the original contracts the idea that companies needed to supply it first, unlike Britain, actually, which did. And America has used a special act for emergencies to ensure that supplies go there first. So the EU took a very lax view initially and has now been trying to tighten conditions for a vaccine that, as you say, is is one that people don't particularly want to take. It seems to me as if at least part of this is a, a sort of shifting of blame, a generation of the of conflict in order to sort of distract people from the from the fact that this the vaccine programs are going going slowly. And that I may be being too cynical when I say that, but that's how it looks because I agree with you. I can't see the point in securing massive supplies of AstraZeneca vaccine when people in Europe don't seem to want to take it. All right, well, Ed and Natasha, we'll come back to all of that throughout the show. Thank you very much. For most of the past year, the COVID-19 pandemic in America has been marked by tragedy and mismanagement. More than half a million people have died. In absolute terms, nowhere else comes close. But the country looks like it's turning a corner. 
death and infection rates have been declining recently, as vaccines are rolled out much more quickly in America than almost anywhere else. More than 120 million Americans have now been jabbed, including around 65% of its senior population. President Biden has said America will produce enough vaccines for every adult by the end of May. In some states, it'll be even sooner. My name is Dr. Anthony Fauci, and I'm the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the NIH, and I'm the chief medical advisor for COVID to President Joe Biden. Dr. Anthony Fauci has been the public face of the American scientific response to COVID-19. He's been telling me about the country's exit plan from the pandemic. Right now, the situation in the United States is really mixed in the the sense that we're making extraordinarily good progress in vaccine. We're up between two and three million vaccinations per day. We have about 11 to 12 percent of the population fully vaccinated, a little bit more than 20 percent of the population receiving one or more doses. The somewhat sobering news is that although we've peaked and come down in a sharp decrement, what we're seeing is a plateauing, you know, at around 50,000 new infections each day, which is at an unacceptably high level. And so the United States, it's fair to say, is on the exit ramp for the pandemic. If things go well with the vaccinations, you know, by the July the 4th, there could be some really significant loosenings of restrictions. But what are the two or three things that kind of keep you up at night, things that might go wrong? Well, there are a couple of things. The first is the issue of the variants. As you know, we have now in our country uh, the UK variant B117, which by the end of this month is projected to be the dominant strain circulating. We know, as the British have correctly um, reported, that it spreads more easily and it's a bit more deadly than the standard virus that we've been dealing with. We also have a group of homegrown uh, variants in California and in New York. So the thing I get concerned about is that if we don't get people vaccinated quickly enough and get protected, that we might have the dominance of variants, which tend to elude some of the protection of the vaccine. So what what could specifically go wrong, though? Is it that, you know, we don't vaccinate enough people in enough time and that allows the variants to run rampant? Is that what you're concerned about? Yes, that's exactly the point. So if you either pull back on public health measures and give the variants a better chance of spreading from person to person among the unvaccinated at the same time as not maximally vaccinating everybody. So we're trying to do both of those things, which I think are the best antidote against the emergence of variants. So, of course, the vaccination program is is gathering pace and you could be reaching several millions, three million, four million vaccinations a day if things go well, um, which is fantastic news. But at some point, we're going to hit a wall in the country. There are going to be people who don't want to be vaccinated and polls show that that could be a third of Americans. How are you going to get to those people? Well, I think you have to continue to reach out to them, not confront them in a negative way about why they don't want to get vaccinated, but try and explain to them and unpack or dissect out what the reasons for their reluctance are. Is it a concern about safety? Is it a concern about efficacy? Or just what is the issue? And to reach out and talk to them about it publicly the way you and I are talking right now. 
you must worry that at a certain level, if you don't get them vaccinated enough, then these variants will spread, the pandemic just will never end, or there might be outbreaks all over the place. Well, what is the sort of number in your head that you must uh, reduce down to? Well, you know, we don't know what that number is for the simple reason is that we don't have enough experience with this particular virus to know what the proportion of the population to be vaccinated would lead to what we call herd immunity. We do know precisely what that is for measles. And for measles, you've got to get well over 90% of the population vaccinated to keep measles essentially eliminated. And if you really want to crush this virus, I think it's got to be somewhere between 70 and 85% of the population, somewhere in that bracket. Not definitive because we don't have the data to prove it, but we perhaps put too much emphasis on the on and off switch of herd immunity. You can get people vaccinated and dramatically diminish the level of infection even before you reach herd immunity. Could you tell me what the most significant change has been in federal response um, to COVID under the new administration? I think there have been several things that are very clear that stand out. One is a direct daily involvement of the president of the United States and his immediate team surrounding him on a day-by-day interest in, input in, and following of what goes on with the outbreak. The second is a much more science-based approach that everything is done is done based on evidence and science. And thirdly, it's important that there is now much greater cooperation, collaboration, and synergy between the federal government and the states. Before, the federal government was involved, but often they said, leave it to the states, you're on your own. If it works, great. If it's not, that's your problem. That's not the way it is right now. It's all of our problems, and we're all in it together, the states and the federal government. Thanks. That's all we have time for, Dr. Fauci. But just quickly, can I ask you, have you booked a summer holiday yet? (laughs) No, I haven't. I haven't even booked a day holiday yet. You definitely need one. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. (laughs) Before we go into the specifics and the science for this, can I just ask you both what you have made of Dr. Anthony Fauci in the past year? He's been a sort of constant companion to everyone covering this pandemic. Natasha? Well, I really like him. Um, I like him because he says what he thinks and he's powered by science. And when you want the kind of unvarnished facts, you get them. And that even brought him into conflict with Trump, as we know. But he was an essential counterweight uh, to what was happening. There was a lot of politics behind the response, the federal response. And he was there consistently all along saying, don't shake hands. Hydro- Hydroxychlorine doesn't work. This outbreak is serious. Masks are useful, that sort of thing. Let's pick up on a few of the things that he raised then. First, the good news. America is turning the corner. The vaccinations are going well. And partly the arrival of the vaccines has been down to Operation Warp Speed. Ed, tell us, was that a success? It's been investing a lot of money in, in, in creating vaccines. I mean, has it been a success? It's been a fantastic success in the what was, I think, bad management by the Trump administration as a whole. It's the one outstanding success that they can point to. Seven candidate vaccines, uh, scaling up manufacture, uh, helping to organise trials. And if you look at the vaccines that were directly supported 
by warp speed, the J&J vaccine, the AstraZeneca vaccine, Moderna, Novavax. In fact, even the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine that wasn't directly helped in research did benefit from, I think, $2 billion worth of pre-orders that helps finance and get things going. So, no, it was a really, really important contribution and a major reason why there are so many vaccines now. Natasha? Yeah, I mean, I think Ed's kind of nailed it. It was an incredible success. And in fact, the way they approached it was very similar to the way that UK approached it, which was to sort of bung a whole wadge of money at vaccine makers and the supply chain, uh, invest in manufacturing, buy advanced doses, and, you know, essentially de-risk the vaccine making process. And in fact, actually, COVAX did that as well. So I think that's a kind of message for the future for how to sort of push the development of medicines along and how you do it. All right, well, let's look at some of the problems then. And the number one problem is coming down the pipe is, is variants. Ed, the variants that Dr. Fauci talked about, you know, some of them are in the country already. What does America need to watch out for? The B117 is not the only variant. There's one first identified in South Africa. And then to the south in Brazil, there's the P1 variant that's really doing enormous amounts of damage. Dr. Fauci talked about sort of 70 to 85 percent levels of vaccination needed in order to reach some sort of threshold of herd immunity. The more infectious variants will push up that threshold of herd immunity by some margin, which means that when all these questions you're asking him about sort of vaccine hesitancy become more pressing with more infectious variants. And so, Natasha, this is a pretty critical phase then. Um, Variants are on the rise. Uh, The number of people vaccinated is increasing, but there's still lots of people out there for the virus to infect and for variants to get a foothold. What are we sort of looking out for there to see if things are going well or not? So we can see some great signs that vaccination is working. What we're seeing is that older people who have been vaccinated, hospitalizations are dropping much faster in this group than they are in others. So this is great. Now, The honest answer is we don't really know what's going to happen. And it would be great if we had better containment in the US. And, you know, like Britain and Israel, it looked like it was going to be just a one way. We're going to vaccinate our way out of this. With America, there is a little bit more uncertainty thanks to those variants, which is not a great position to be in. But let's look on the bright side. Maybe we're going to be able to knock most of this virus on the head with the vaccines that we have. And then we maybe have to mop up with some slightly modified vaccines later in the year. Well, containment, you know, things like wearing masks or stay-at-home orders, all those sorts of things which America and the world has, has had to deal with in the last year, um, in, in that country is, is a particularly political issue because it's about freedoms and all these other things which Americans hold very, very dear to themselves. And I, I wonder if how is politics going to affect what happens in the next few months? It's amazing to see how... You know, the defining question of partisanship has played a role in, in a pandemic, which should, you'd, you'd thought, bring people together, but it didn't. You know, everything became sort of ground up in the mill of partisanship. And I don't think that will change. You saw, for instance, Texas beginning to relax really quickly as soon as sort of vaccination programmes really got underway there as a statement of, you know, its underlying political philosophy. And you saw Biden respond to that by calling such measures Neanderthal, which then, you know, sparked another wave of recrimination. I don't see that changing at all. And especially if variants start to take off in the country and there's pressure to 
go back on some of the social um, distancing relaxations, I think that would be highly, highly political uh, and difficult. And there'll be a, a kind of battle, I think, over the record of various states, which tend to try and squeeze all of the differences between states into some sort of preordained political storyline that really doesn't fit them. The, the idea that Florida's done brilliantly because it's Republican and that California's done terribly because it's Democrat or vice versa. Both sides try and, and fit the facts to their prejudices and, and they don't fit terribly well. To read The Economist's coverage of the pandemic and much more, you'll need to subscribe. You'll find the best offer at economist.com slash thejabpod. A story I enjoyed recently was in our sister magazine, 1843, all about the rise of sweatpants. Now, these are called jogging bottoms in some parts of the world. And while it's been liberating for most of us to wear jogging bottoms while stuck at home or socialising on Zoom, these items of clothing actually represent some form of existential threat for fashion designers. To read that, you'll need to subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash thejabpod to find the best subscription offer. It's in the notes for this episode. The way America's governed means that individual states have held much of the control when it's come to deciding how to respond to COVID-19. In California, masks are mandatory and bars are closed. Whereas in Texas, masks are not required and all businesses are open. Not having a centralised healthcare system also means states are vaccinating at different rates. James Fransham from The Economist data team has been digging into the latest data. And, as we have done so often in the podcast before, we've turned that data into sound. The first place to be sonified this week is the US state of Georgia. The Peach State has the lowest rate of vaccination across America. 25% of adults have received their first dose, and 14% have received their second dose. Next up is Texas. The Lone Star State is 41st among American states. 29% of adults have had one shot of a COVID-19 vaccine, and 13% have had two shots. The Golden State is next. California has given first doses to nearly one-third of its adults, and 13% have received follow-up doses, placing it in the middle of our table. But leading the state's race to herd immunity is New Mexico. 42% of adults have received a first jab of a COVID-19 vaccine, and one quarter have gotten a follow-up jab. James, how do these states fit into the vaccination programme that's being rolled out across America more broadly? In terms of the total population, America is making pretty good progress. It sits eighth in our global vaccine table. About 30% of all adults have now had a first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. If we then dig deeper 
into the states. The CDC have a, a, a nice map of the data and you can see that actually there's a bunch of states, Montana, North and South Dakota, Wisconsin, and they've all given first doses to over 30% of adults. Whereas there are three southeastern states that are all conjoined, Tennessee, Alabama and Georgia, where that rate is less than 25%. Tell us what the situation is in some of the big states like New York. New York is an interesting one, actually. Across the state as a whole, about 30% of adults have, have now had a first dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. But then if you look at New York City, which has some really interesting data, so currently 22% of adults have had a first dose. Among whites, that percentage, again, yes, is 22%. But then among blacks and Latinos, it's just 11%. So you really do see a lack of access among these minority groups um, in New York City particularly. What do we know about the impact of the vaccination programme so far? So we, we see that there's a, a bit of a piecemeal picture across the, across the states. But, you know, do we see a signal from the vaccines in the, term, in the number of hospitalizations and deaths and so on? Yeah, honestly, Alok, this is where it gets a little bit sketchy. And I'd love to tell you that I've, I've been digging into the numbers here, there and everywhere. But actually, that's the problem with the kind of federal system is that they're not really widely available. So the only good data there is really is uh, there's a CDC data file, which is a weekly file of, of deaths by age group across the nation as a whole. And I was, I was actually looking at this earlier. And if you look at the proportion of deaths that each age group account for, you can see that the share of COVID-19 deaths among people aged 85 and over has decreased from 35% of all COVID-19 deaths when the vaccination programme began to about 25% now. I would caveat this a little bit, however, with a couple of things. One is that we did see a similar decline in the proportion of deaths among 85-year-olds last spring. And secondly, I think you'd want to corroborate that data with state-level information and data on hospitalizations and cases by age too, um, as we've done for Israel and Britain. But unfortunately, it doesn't exist. Natasha, what's your impression of how different states are doing? Are there sort of people doing well and people not doing well? Well, I think you need to overlay uh, a a little bit of information across this sort of state-by-state race, and that is that some states are really small and some states are really big. And so looking at it in percentage terms seems to make sense, but actually it doesn't. If you're a very big state that stretches over a lot of territory like California, you're going to find it a lot harder to get to all of your population. And so Alaska and the Dakotas are doing really well in terms of percentages, but they have populations of about 700 to 800,000 people. So the kind of logistical challenge is somewhat different. And if you look at California, which appears not to be doing so well, it has actually vaccinated 9 million people, which is the population of Israel. So I think statistics can be misleading, I think is what I'm saying. So Overall, the US is now doing really well and it's rolling out vaccines rapidly and that's great. Ed, what are the strengths of having a sort of federated response to COVID-19 and and what are some of the weaknesses? It's a really tricky one to answer because in in a sense, the strengths and weaknesses are are different sides of the same coin. and, And that is that there are some things that if a federal system gets it right, are really effective. And we spoke earlier about warp speed as being, you know, the outstanding example of that. The United States got warp speed right. 
as a result, you've got lots of vaccines. I contrast that with Europe, where the procurement of vaccines was done centrally as part of a, an attempt to sort of build the EU as an institution and to build solidarity. And the EU got its purchasing of vaccines wrong. They were risk averse. And the whole of Europe has to live with that. So the centralization of things has, has forced the system to live with its, with its weakest part. On the other hand, in the United States, much of the rest of the dealing with COVID under the Trump administration was chaotic and wasn't scientific enough. And at that level, the federal system really helped because it allowed bits of the system to compensate for weaknesses. And that was even true at the state level, where in Florida, for instance, a very libertarian governor was disinclined to use social distancing measures. And that was somewhat compensated for at the county level, where different counties actually did introduce measures. So I'm, I'm afraid it's rather a, a complicated answer is it, it kind of depends. I mean, I'd just add to that interesting portrait and just say that, you know, if you do have a sort of functioning federal system, it can create a lot of the public goods that are difficult for individual smaller states to create. And so that's perhaps the research and the overall leadership and things like that. So, you know, if you imagine that's the function of having a sort of federal bit and an individual bit versus the individual bits is that, you know, you, you can do big things. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's scale. The things that scale really well are done at the federal level. The things that don't really scale are probably better done locally. Exactly. And it's like when it comes down to sort of say things like vaccine hesitancy, it may be that the kind of state and county system really comes into its own because the people who run those bits of America will really know how to kind of get in touch with the communities that perhaps are resistant to vaccination. Well, this is a good moment to talk about what's going on in the Bronx, where there's a project to reach vaccine-hesitant communities directly. In New York, the Bronx Rising Initiative hopes to vaccinate 15,000 residents of low-income housing within eight weeks. I'm Rosemary Ward. I cover New York for The Economist. So what is the Bronx Rising Initiative? Bronx Rising Initiative is a charity founded this time last year by Thomas Ramos, a former congressional candidate. There's a, a high concentration of people in you know, high dense small areas, so uh, it was inevitable that the Bronx was going to get extremely hit hard, especially when you're looking at the health conditions as well. We're, we're ranked 62 out of 62 when it comes to the counties in New York State uh, when it comes to health. And since its launch, it has really reacted to the pandemic. It's provided food for the needy, and now it's signing up the elderly living in low-income housing for vaccinations and setting up pop-up vaccination sites in the apartment buildings themselves. As Mr. Ramos said, the need for vaccinating this vulnerable population is great. What are some of the reasons behind the hesitancy in the communities that Bronx Rising is serving? What kinds of things are happening there? There's a lot of misinformation that they're hearing from their family members. Those who do have access to the internet are reading crazy things about the dangers of vaccinations, which are ridiculous. Some have genuine concerns because they've had medical issues in the past and don't like needles. But I don't think there's enough outreach to these communities. Only now is the city thinking, oh, we need to actually go to these places to make sure that the vulnerable are getting vaccinated. Because not every 80-year-old 
woman who doesn't speak English very well is going to line up at two in the morning at Yankee Stadium to get jabbed. You have to work harder to reach these people. How does the outreach actually work? Can you describe one of your trips with the team? Yeah, so the organization usually coordinates with a tenant leader to enter the building, and they literally go up and down every floor, knocking on doors. All right, Bronx Rising Initiative. We're here to find out whether or not you would like to have an opportunity to get your vaccination, your COVID vaccination. Some of these public housing complexes are huge, and they knock on the door, they say who they are, and explain what they're doing. Sometimes they're turned away. There's a lot of fear about the vaccines. And the Bronx Rising initiative team explains why getting the vaccine is important, um, but takes care not to pressure anyone. And we're going to be bringing the vaccine over to the community center next week, right downstairs. So just to register you, I would need your first and last name and your phone number. They take down their info. They offer to follow up with a call. His name is Paul, P-O-P-E. Got you. What's your phone number, Arthur? And usually within a week or two, the team is back, along with nurses from Morris Heights Health Clinic, an organization that they're working with, to give people their first jab. We're going to be right downstairs. You don't have to travel far. And you're guaranteed both doses. There's going to be a staff of nurses. We'll be there. Okay. Um, and so hopefully we'll see you there uh, next week. All right. Thank you so much. And most of the people who answered the doors were surprised that the vaccinations were going to be given in their own building. Like they didn't even have to leave their building or wear a coat to get vaccinated. All they had to do was trot downstairs to the building senior center to get their first jab. What was it like when you went back to see people who'd actually signed up for their jabs when they actually got their injections? It was actually lovely. When I went there today, Bronx Rising Initiative had enough vaccines to share with the surrounding community beyond the people who lived in that building. So not only did I see the familiar faces from that day we knocked on doors, but other elderly members in the neighborhood were allowed to sign up. And there were several walk-ins, including a construction worker who was working on a site nearby. Don't be nervous. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's really good that you're here. Yeah. One lovely lady, Eartha Pope, a 79-year-old woman, was deathly afraid of getting the vaccine um, because she's had adverse reactions to other medical procedures. But it was so wonderful to see her there today, really nervous. Yeah. And just think how, you know, you'll have protection against this very scary disease. I know. But every time they show me, it looked like I tell my daughter, them, I said, it looked like the meal getting longer. <laughs> every time they show it on TV, I get more nervous. But ultimately, really yeah. happy to have gotten it when she was given that first jab. Yeah. You okay? It went all right? It went all right. Yeah. Were you a little nervous going in there? Yes. <laughs> was it as big as you thought? No. And it didn't even hardly feel it. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, good. So now you, oh, you must feel so much better. Yeah. <laughs> that's wonderful. That's really good. Uh, the Bronx Rising Initiative uh, tackles hard-to-reach uh, Latino groups. And in James's data earlier, we heard that Latino groups have had less access to the vaccine generally. But I wonder, Ed, is there 
a difference between different ethnic groups when it comes to vaccine hesitancy too? Well, there, there appears to be. I mean, America has a tendency of, of sorting everything into ethnic categories and sort of looking to try and place different kinds of behaviour into different ethnic groups. And I think you know, there are other factors as well, like poverty, like access to healthcare facilities that probably cut across ethnic groups. There's also, I'm afraid, politics here. And recent polls have suggested that particularly white Republican men are disinclined to be vaccinated at really quite high rates. And sort of that's going to be an issue too. What came through from Rosemary's report is that dealing with this is not going to be settled by, you know, one great speech by somebody. It's going to be settled almost sort of patient by patient, arm by arm, with a persuasion. Natasha, could you go into the into the data a little bit more for us? Thirty percent of people in America, on average, say that they won't take the vaccine if offered. But but that hides a sort of disparity between different groups, right? Right, and we're sort of seeing a very partisan difference, aren't we? Um, Republican men are saying about forty nine percent are saying they don't plan to get the shot compared to about 6% of Democratic men. This is a, a new poll. We need to figure out how to reach these people and what's stopping them as well. If I had to make a guess, I'd say my hunch is that it's about trust. And I keep saying this, you know, vaccination is a social phenomenon and you do what people around you are doing. You follow the lead of your neighbours, of your family. And so it's possible that... After the election, there was no kind of clean concession. The previous president didn't try and unite people. And it's hard not to see that now in some of the partisan differences about vaccination, because this is now the Biden rollout plan. You know, he's leading it. He's doing 100 million in 100 days. And so I think that that sort of lack of kind of connection, perhaps, between these Republican men and perhaps the current leadership that's causing them to sort of not feel trustful and confident in getting vaccinated. I, I think there's one other factor as well that's, that is interesting, which is perceptions of risk. I mean, you, you find on the right communities of people who, who think that this disease is being exaggerated in order for the federal government to be able to extend its control of people's lives or exaggerated in order to do down the Trump administration and that it's really no worse than flu. Well, you know, if your perception that this disease is really not very dangerous you're probably less inclined to get vaccinated. If your perception is the disease is really dangerous, as it should be, in my view, when you consider the risks of death and also the risks of long COVID, then you're more likely to get vaccinated because your sense of, of the gains from vaccination are different too. So I think that the job of getting persuading people is, is <laughs> operates on many levels. It's really going to be very time-consuming and difficult. Vaccine confidence is an incredibly important piece of this whole puzzle, and we'll be coming back to it um, in more detail in, in future episodes of The Jab. But let me wind up this conversation by going back to America. Ed, do you think America's going to make its Independence Day target? Uh, I do, actually. Um, I am worried about the variants, but assuming they remain reasonably under control then I feel optimistic. And I'd like to think that sort of life will gradually get back to some sort of normality, even if everyone continues to wear masks. 
Natasha? Yeah, I think I think so. I think the forecast from the analysts uh, Airfinity is that the US will have vaccinated three quarters of its population by the end of July. And so July the 4th is just a, a nice bit of politics. It's obviously a day that everyone celebrates anyway. And I'll be celebrating with them. Fantastic. Thank you, Ed and Natasha. So what I've learned from this podcast about America is that the long-term outlook is promising, but the pandemic is far from over. The progress also is patchy, so infection rates have been coming down nationally for months, but they're on the rise again in some states, uh, for example, Michigan. Vaccinations are happening at pace, but they're not equal amongst all communities. And as if all of that wasn't hard enough, it turns out that partisan politics in the country could further scupper the rollout of vaccines. Now, just before we go, Ed and Natasha, is there anything else you spotted this week that you might want to share with our listeners? Ed? Yeah, I was struck by a, an article we got in our international section in this week's issue that, that looked at polling a 95 countries by Gallup on how happy people are in the pandemic. And it probably won't surprise you. I don't you know if that, I want to know the answer to this. Well, in Britain, <laughs> it won't surprise you that, that, that we're all very depressed compared with how we were before. Everyone's down in the pass. mouth. Um, and in particular, the, the shape of happiness usually goes sort of young people are happy and then you get very depressed in middle age as you realise life's so terrible and ghastly. And then you get slightly happier again um, as you get older. Well, that the shape of that U-bend, as they call it, has completely changed. And the young are very cross and unhappy in, in Britain and the elderly, have, you know, schadenfreude is making them feel quite pleased. But the interesting thing that really caught my eye was how in the US are actually happier than they were now, than they were in 2019. And um, it's kind of interesting, like, why might that be? Um, why is that? I, I don't know. Um, to begin with, uh, you know, surveys showed that Americans were very stressed out when the pandemic first hit, but that seems to have gone. Um, perhaps one one thing is that if, if, you know, there are lots of Americans who don't really believe this disease is very serious and so they don't feel very threatened by it. Maybe maybe that's something to do, do with it. Maybe it's, it's one of those mysteries that people sometimes thrive in adversity. Natasha, what about you? What, what, what do people miss this week? If you haven't seen uh, the Randy Rainbow musical routine on vaccines uh, to the tune of Mr Sandman, I do think you need to listen to it. Who is Randy Rainbow? He's an entertainer and um, he has, uh, you know, his, his joy is making little videos where he interviews politicians and then he sort of swoops into a musical number. Mr Biden, bring my vaccine, keep me protected from COVID-19. The trick to how I'm a fix of that magic Pfizer or Moderna. Well, this is great. Uh, between that and Dolly Parton's vaccine song, uh, there's definitely going to be a whole cultural element to the, to the recovery, I feel. Uh, Natasha, Ed, thank you both very much. Thanks, Alok. Thanks. That's all from us. The show's producer is Duncan Barber. The sound designer is Nico Rofast. And the editor is John Shields. If you like the podcast, please do spread the word and leave us a rating and a review. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at economist.com. 
In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more on the jab next week when we'll focus on how biomedical technology has been advanced by the pandemic and how what we've learned might help us prepare for future threats. 